All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the GT Power Hour. Welcome back, everybody, to our 11th episode. Uh, as always, I am your host, Rory Sweeney, and with me is the venerable Glenn Thomas. Glenn, how are you feeling this month? Oh, I'm feeling terrific. It's great to be back together again, and uh, we got another terrific show. We, we were on the heels of two terrific episodes with Commissioner Glick and Chairman Chatterjee, and uh, we got another wonderful guest here today, and really looking forward to the conversation. Well, I was going to say, we are definitely hot off the heels of our last cracking episode with Commissioner Glick, but PJM's no meeting days for July are early this month to coincide with the Independence Day holiday. So here we are, but it's cooler on the East Coast today, and I saved a fledgling bird last night. So there are a couple of pluses. Glenn, any other news that you want to mention? Yeah, well, congrats on your uh, good deed there. And uh, yeah, hopefully uh, some of the PJM operators are out enjoying this beautiful weather. Uh, After we recorded the uh, last podcast, PJM ended the sequestration of its control room. And the operators that had been locked on site, eating there, sleeping there, working 12-hour shifts there, finally had a chance to go home and visit their families and get out of that control room. Uh, but the sacrifice that those folks made over the last 10 weeks, we've talked about it a couple times on the podcast, and I'm not sure we can quite frankly talk about it enough. Really, among the unsung heroes of this whole COVID crisis, as Chairman Chatterjee pointed out on the podcast. So again, hats off to the men and women who sacrificed so much over the last 10 weeks to keep our lights on in the region, to keep the grid reliable, and to allow us to continue to live as best we could through the crisis um, with our power on. So thank you, PJM, and specifically thank you to those operators. Yeah, the new cancel culture that's growing on the internet has been using these blank is over party hashtags to cancel people uh, into not speaking their opinions and basically creating harassment and, and bullying these folks for their thoughts. I'm not a big fan of this cancel culture trend. So in the age old spirit of taking back and repurposing words and phrases, I'd like to suggest that if you're listening to this, please send a tweet to PJM using the hashtag sequestration is over party to thank those operators for making the sacrifices that they have over this period during the pandemic and making sure the lights stay on. We also have to thank our guest this month for agreeing to sit down with us on such a short notice. But in my experience, she is always ready for emergencies and challenges. So I'm not at all surprised. Glenn, would you like to introduce her? Yeah, absolutely. And it's terrific that here on the GT Power Hour, we're getting a chance to cross the river to the Jersey side and welcome Stephanie Brandt to our podcast. Stephanie is the director of the Division of Rate Council in New Jersey. She is the face and voice of New Jersey's utility consumers throughout the Garden State. She has a wealth of experience. She's been in that position since October of 2007. Prior to that, she bounced around the Attorney General's office in various positions, consummate public servant, Graduated from Columbia University School of Law in 1986. She's a terrific voice, a terrific resource, and a lot of fun to work with, especially when you have the opportunity to be on the same side as her. So, Stephanie, welcome to the GT Power Hour. 
Thanks so much, Glenn. Thank you, Rory. I'm really happy to be here. We really appreciate having you here. And thanks again for sitting down. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your position? You know, rate council is one of those positions in state government that I think a lot of people don't necessarily know what it does for them. Yeah, we are the great unsung heroes, right? Because we touch everything that everybody does, but nobody knows about us and nobody really (laughs) understands how everything interconnects. For me, this actually was a kind of a culmination of all the things I've done in, in my career. I was mostly an environmental lawyer for many, many years. And at the attorney general's office, as I moved up the ranks, I started to do more general practice. And when I came over to rate council, I knew a little bit about utility regulation, but nothing like what I know now. And it's so important when you talk to people about what you do and they realize, oh, wait a minute, I pay eight of those different types of bills. I, I, I deal with this all the time. And it becomes a universal thing. But what happens then is you start talking about what you really do and their eyes glaze over because nobody <laughs> actually understands that exactly how rates are made and, and things like that. But then they always say to me, well, I'm really glad you understand that. And so I guess that's why we're here. And I'm, I'm very, very lucky too, because I run an office where we have a little under 30 people all together, but I have about 15 lawyers and almost all of them are really committed to what we do and they have been there for a long time so they know it even better than I do and I've been able to learn from them and we've been able to keep up with the burgeoning workload of our office and I'm very grateful for them. You know that's one of the more interesting things when you look at consumer advocate offices in New Jersey and elsewhere Uh, you have a lot of really dedicated individuals who have been there for a long time. It's really really impressive just to think of the folks who are in those roles and obviously I'm from Pennsylvania and you know Sonny Papowski and and Tanya McCloskey two dedicated consumer advocates who held (laughs) Sonny was in that position I think almost like 30 years. I mean it was absolutely incredible and Tanya you know was there with them most of the time. So it really is amazing the retention of folks in these offices. And what do you attribute that to? I mean, is it just folks are absolutely dedicated to the cause? I think it's a combination of things. I think that, yes, they're absolutely dedicated to the cause. And it's good to feel good about what you do. And, you know, it makes you want to get up in the morning and go to work. But also, I think that, at least in my office, because of our independence, we don't suffer some of the political wins that a lot of other agencies do. And coming from the Attorney General's office, I certainly made sure to run our office. We run it in an apolitical manner. So our only master are the ratepayers of New Jersey. And that way, we're not subject to the political wins. You don't necessarily have everybody turn over every four years or eight years. So it is a place you could come and spend your career and do good things. And those positions aren't necessarily that common. You know, and I think a similar thing is true in Pennsylvania. I will say there is some turnover. People retire eventually, but there really is a a way in which the consumer advocates believe in what they do and stick together. And it's a good job if you want to do that kind of work. Let's talk a little bit about the environment you're working in. I mean, you mentioned your office is apolitical and, and strives to carry itself out in that manner, which is great. But you obviously operate in a very political environment and utilities are very politically connected entities. And, you know, most of the time you're in a different spot than utilities on a lot of issues. Just talk about how you operate in that environment when you're up against such a formidable politically connected adversary. How do you play in that sandbox? Well, you develop allies. So 
yes, obviously the utilities are much more politically powerful than my office is, but our office represents all ratepayers, not just residential ratepayers. So if I can get the business community on my side and to speak up, then they often carry a lot of political sway with the legislature, with the governor. So you develop coalitions with people and, you know, some of them end up to be fairly odd coalitions for many years. You know, we've worked with the chemistry council and we've had the citizen action sitting there with the chemistry council, taking the same position and testifying in front of the legislature together. And that can be pretty powerful. So we do try to develop allies and that that helps on the political end. And like I mentioned, AARP is a very important ally because not only do they carry some political sway, but they can fill a room with people in red shirts if I need it. And that is often a very helpful thing. You know, you just speak the truth, right? And people will listen. Certainly the press helps. If we get covered in a press outlet, then more, even more people read it. So those are the tools that you have. There's no magic to it. You just try to be a thorn in the side enough that people will ultimately listen to you. And then if they don't, a lot of times I've seen it happen where you know, suddenly there'll be a rate increase or there'll be a subsidy for, for an industry. And unfortunately, sometimes afterwards, people get up in arms. Right, right. And that can help too, because you can say, hey, remember when you did that? Remember what the reaction was? And, and sometimes you can have a whole political sway. Election years are hard. <laughs> they mm. really are. It feels obvious at this point that, you know, there's a lot more to your position and what you're doing than simply representing consumers in rate issues like this. What do you consider the biggest challenge among these? Or, or is there another one that is that we're not even touching on yet? Well, the politics is a big challenge because, mm-hmm. you know, we don't have the same political clout. And I do think that one problem that we're seeing is a demise of experience in this area. So you have people in positions of power who really don't understand how rates are done or don't understand the principles behind it. And they're making decisions. So right now we're engaged in a huge battle in New Jersey in multiple cases where all we're trying to to preserve is the concept of used and useful utility property, which for those of us in the, in the business, we say, well, of course, you, can, you know, they, can, they can't earn on property that isn't their own or property that they're not using to provide service. But if you don't know that, you don't know that. And so not everybody buys into that. And so there's a lot of educating that needs to go on. And it's very difficult if people just don't understand it. And I I realize I've been in government for 30 years, so I know how government works, but not everybody does. So that often becomes a problem. And it's not even that they're necessarily opposed to what we say, but they're like, well, why should that rule apply? Well, it's because there's Supreme Court cases that say that rule applies but you don't always get people who understand that. So humility and the ability to understand what you don't know would be my number one criteria for hiring anybody in this business. Yeah, and I I guess parallel with that too is, I mean, because I agree with that observation 100%. I mean, these, these industries have gotten a lot more complicated. They're not this sort of straightforward monopoly, you know, monopoly regulation tended to be pretty linear, but there's there's so much nuance to it right now that it is hard to understand. And I mean, folks like you and I, Stephanie, have been doing this for, you know, five, 30 years, you know, we, we've been in and around this, but it is it is awfully daunting for folks coming in. Uh, to try to pick this stuff up quickly and appreciate all that history. 
Um, because, I mean, you've seen the world before restructuring, you know, in the power space. You know some of the challenges with that world, and a lot of folks don't appreciate that because they weren't there. I will say when I first got into this, just getting, you know, from a reporting standpoint, as a reporter, you're always trying to find the full truth, or at least that was always my goal, was find the comprehensive facts of what's going on to write a comprehensive article from all the perspectives. And every time I wrote something, I realized that the last thing I had written that I thought was comprehensive was just barely scratching the surface of what the next thing is that I now had to talk about. And, you know, you read one article or you read one report and realize that that requires you to now read 10 other reports after that before you can do this. When you're on a, when you're on a daily deadline, that can get pretty daunting. So this is certainly an industry that goes on. One of the biggest newspapers in New Jersey is the Newark Star-Ledger. And every time they'd get a new energy reporter, we would schedule some time and they'd come to my office and we would sit down for like two or three hours and I would run through, I'd do my tutorial, you know, utility regulation 101 for them. And they were always so grateful. But the problem was, is that the way that, that the newspaper industry is now, those people kept turning over so often. I was right. doing it once right. every six months. And wow. now I don't think they have an energy reporter. I think they just have their business reporter do it. But it's, you know, it's hard. We try very hard to do those tutorials because it really makes a difference if somebody understands what they're writing about. Speaking of things that are sometimes challenging to explain and understand, why don't we transition to New Jersey's energy goals and the environmental goals of the state and, and Governor Murphy's clean energy vision. Why you talk a little bit about it, you know, to us about, you know, your views on it and, and how you see it playing out over the next several years? For the most part, I share those goals. I think we do need to move to a cleaner portfolio. I think we do need to reduce the amount of electricity that we use. You know, I do think climate change is real and we have to address it. And and I am prepared to do all of those things. But we have to do it in a way that still allows people to have these essential services. You know, you can't say to somebody, well, if you can't afford electricity, then don't use it. So we, we really have to find a way to do this where we are still allowing people to afford to pay their bills. And also, we, we need to do it in a way where there's buy-in from the general public. And I, I say this so many times to, to a lot of the, you know, the climate advocates in the state and, the, um, and people at the BPU, where you know, I, I will say to them, if you don't get buy-in from the public, you can have the most beautiful programs for energy efficiency, or but it's not going to happen. You, you, you need my clients in order to make your, your goals come true. And if you make their bills go up too high, you're going to lose them. And it's not enough to say, but if energy efficiency, it's going to lower their bills. Because it's not, <laughs> unless they, they design it correctly. And that's the thing. And, and one of the things that I've been really focused on lately is making sure that we are not having basically poor people subsidize rich people. I think that's incredibly important. So if we're designing energy efficiency programs, if you don't have low and moderate income people included in the benefits, then you really can't ask them to pay the costs. Right. And this has been an ongoing discussion. And it's one that I think is incredibly important. Because I think there's clear evidence that low and moderate income people are also more impacted by climate change. So if they can't benefit from these programs and are only paying in, then it's not going to work. And that's what I keep trying to um, impress upon my colleagues. Electric vehicles is obvious, an obvious example of that. Right now, 
they're too expensive for the average person to afford. That's not going to stay that way. And it's not going to be that way forever. And I would also say that right now, the people buying electric vehicles are prepared to pay more. They're the early adopters. They're the people who waited online for the new iPhone when it was going to come out. They understand. They want it because it's new and it's exciting. And so what we really need to do is let them pay for themselves as it goes on. And it should build. Yes, there's probably some public money that needs to go into it. But if you just set it up so that poor people are paying for these cars they will never dream of being able to afford, you're going to lose the public. And without the public, you cannot make any of these programs successful. Because obviously that's another factor in the public discussion. One of your outlets for making this argument is through the media. Do you ever come across, as this industry becomes more mainstream and more people are talking about it, we're getting a lot more, I feel, reporters and outlets that are covering these issues, but they cover it from certain perspectives. Are you finding it difficult to break through predisposed positions when you're talking with reporters about these issues and getting them to understand the the nuances, because this is a nuanced topic. It's an important, Mm -hmm. but very nuanced topic. Are you finding it difficult to break through their predispositions to explain why this is important in the way that you're describing it as important? Sometimes, but I I have to say that reporters are more open-minded than a lot of other people. I I do find, I, you know, for the most part, I deal with a lot of the same reporters over and over again, and I found them to be very smart people. And when you start to explain to them, you know, if I say to them, well, do you understand how that's going to get paid for? And they see that they're like, oh, okay. You know, so I see it less with reporters than I do with some of the, some of the activists. And again, a lot of the activists in New Jersey have known me for a long time. So they know that I'm, that I'm about what I'm talking about, but there are people, you know, you'll get people, I've been accused of being a climate denier. I mean, it's (laughs) ridiculous, but it, I've certainly been accused of that. You know, it's, it's because I will come out and say, you know what, we can't pay it so much for this. You know, we can't afford this right now. We've got to find a way to extend it out or find other sources of funding or whatever. But there are certainly are people who do not see past their own agenda. And, and I, I, yeah, I've been yelled at in, uh, more times than I can count. And I don't care. <laughs> I really don't. It, it, you know, as long as I'm doing my, if I, I always say if I get fired for doing my job, then at least I've done my job. So I, I attend pretty much every PJM meeting, I think. Uh, there are a few exceptions. But at a lot of them, Greg Polos, who is the executive director for the consumer advocates of the PJM states, is often representing the consumer advocate perspectives of which you guys would be considered one, obviously. And mentioning some of the difficulties that consumer advocates face in effectively engaging on these more wholesale market issues, these FERC jurisdictional issues, um, while you're also obviously having to deal with your in-state and retail jurisdictional or state jurisdictional and retail issues. Do you find it difficult to keep up on the two separate streams of work, particularly given everything all the equally complicated non-energy issues you have going on. And how, how do you manage that? Well, it's hard. It, it really is. And thank God for Greg Poulos, because I think we wouldn't do it, be able to do it without caps and without him. For me, what happened was I came into this job and we were not doing a whole lot of work. work. We did some, uh, we never went to PJM as far as I knew but we mostly were focused on state level work and that was fine. But then as I started to learn more about 
the federal side, I realized, and my statute specifically says we can do both the federal and state side. And I, I started to realize that here we were on the state side fighting tooth and nail over maybe, I don't know, $100 million in a revenue requirement. And then on the federal side, there were things that were going to cost us $100 billion that we weren't even getting involved in. Mm -hmm. So we realized we absolutely had to do something. And we do, we work extremely closely with the other consumer advocate offices within PJM. It was a long battle to get the consumer advocates of PJM states caps up, up and running and funded, but it was something that we really worked on. I was actually the first president of caps back when it, when it first started. And what it does for us, it, it allows us to have somebody like Greg who can attend every meeting. At the time we started caps, my people weren't allowed to leave the state. There was a complete travel ban. So we couldn't participate at PJM. We needed somebody there who could actually go because so much goes on at PJM in those rooms and in the hallways. So CAPS has just been a huge game changer for us. And I, I like to think that it um, has not only increased our profile, but that other members of PJM see the benefit of it because we educate ourselves. We're, we're not taking positions, just you know, stamping our feet and saying, you know, don't pay for anything. We are trying to take reasoned positions. We are trying to participate as full-fledged, educated members. And I think it's really benefited the process altogether. I, I hope that other people at PJM agree with that. And then at FERC, which is frankly even harder, we hired FERC Council. I had enough funding to pay for FERC Council. We often share them with other consumer advocate offices, so everybody will chip in to pay for that. And that's also been a huge help because they are physically in Washington and they can go to the technical conferences. Before we were all remote, it really made a difference. And they are very, very experienced. So they give us very good advice on, on what to do in, in a lot of those cases. And now it feels like we're in everything and it can be a little overwhelming. There are four of us in our office, including me and including my, my number two person who are we're the only ones who do the FERC work. And so, you know, it's a lot to keep up with. It definitely is because we have all of our state work as well. So, you know, we do the best we can, but thank thankfully we've been able to pool our resources with our brethren in other states. And, and in that way, we can try to keep up. While we're on the topic of FERC, the very recent order from the federal D.C. Circuit Court came out regarding FERC's use of tolling orders. And it was a very impactful, and interesting order. Glenn, I don't know if you want to describe the order itself. Sure. Yeah. And I, I agree. It's a pretty interesting and impactful order. And it was the case of the Allegheny Defense Project. Without getting into too many details, it was a pipeline project that ran through multiple states. FERC granted approval to the pipeline. Opponents of the uh, pipeline, which were mostly landowner groups, objected to it. They filed for rehearing. FERC issued a tolling order on the rehearing request, which is typical practice for FERC. They have, by statute, 30 days to issue rehearing orders. What they've gotten in the practice of doing is saying, hey, we're going to grant rehearing for further consideration, and then they could sit there as long as FERC deemed necessary to grant the approval. Uh, what happened in this case is it sat there for several months. In the meantime, the pipeline went forward, land started getting condemned, and a whole series of facts unfolded that really put the landowners in a tough situation of not having a final determination from FERC, so they couldn't go to a court for, for appellate relief. Meanwhile, the project was moving forward and their land was getting taken. 
the DC Circuit said no more to that. Uh, the DC Circuit basically said, hey, the statute says 30 days for if you got to issue an order. If you don't issue an order within 30 days, it's going to be denied, the request for rehearing. So for FERC practitioners, it's a big deal. I simplified the decision a fair amount there. But what it means going forward is FERC will probably have to either act quickly on rehearing or make sure their orders are really in good shape when they come out the first time. Because the reality is a lot of rehearing requests probably are not going to be granted under this new type of regime. It also has pretty significant impacts for existing cases. Uh, we'll talk about the Moper in a minute, but you know the Moper case is in various states of appellate review right now, and there's implications for that order as well. So yeah, it's a pretty big development. I, I will we'll note for the GT Power, our listeners, Commissioner Glick talked at length about this in our last podcast, and Chairman Chatterjee did as well. It's something we've been talking about here for a while, and we got the decision from the DC Circuit, and I'm, I'm sure we'll hear more from FERC in terms of how they intend to respond to it. Yes, the list of obscure references related to this issue continues to grow. One of the circuit judges described it as Kafka-esque in a previous opinion, and this June 30th decision referred to FERC's use of tolling orders as Schrodinger's cat, both <laughs> final and not final at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, in a use that somewhat blurs the original intent of the phrase, but fits fits well enough. A more direct metaphor I, I read about is called, said, the court gave FERC a spanking. One consultant uh, said the impact on power projects will be little beyond minor delays and changes to rules, though it could be used to challenge delays to rule changes in PJM and ISO England, and specifically mentioned consumer advocates doing that. Stephanie, I know it's very recent. I don't know how much you're willing to discuss on this, but what were your thoughts? I thought they were exactly right, because the, you know when you read the facts of the case, those people had legitimate arguments for challenging the certificate of public inconvenience and necessity that was issued to the pipeline, and they could not get heard. And by the time they were going to get heard, the pipeline was already built and operational, mm-hmm. and their homes had been taken. And to me, that's just eminent domain abuse is a big issue in its own right, but this was just crazy. And they say justice delayed is justice denied. And I think in this case, it really was. And the fact is that FERC abused the practice. I don't know that this case ever would have happened if FERC had, you know, issued a few tolling orders just to give themselves more time to consider things. But they actually cited the Moper case in the decision because, you know, of the extraordinary length of time that the tolling order was in effect so that nothing was going on, all the auctions were being delayed. And when you think about the mess that that has created, it really is an abuse of the statutory language, which was trying to make sure that FERC issued its orders on a timely basis. So I think FERC really has nobody to blame but themselves in a lot of ways. And if a reasonable use of tolling orders, I don't think anybody would have a problem with. But there are just a lot of cases where, you know, by using the tolling order and precluding appeal, then you just had people sitting in limbo while projects were moving forward. And it's just not fair. And if you read the decision, you read the facts of the case, you can see why it, it, it was almost inevitable it was going to come out that way. Now, they did say they could issue, still issue a tolling order to actually rehear a case, but they just couldn't issue a tolling order in order to give themselves more time to issue an order. 
there was one dissent among the 11 active judges at the DC circuit that noted the court didn't have enough justification to overturn its 50 year precedent on the issue. Do you think that line of thinking goes anywhere? I'm a big believer in stare decisis. I do not dispute that, but I think that sometimes you do have to overturn precedent if there is an abuse of a statutory provision. So there are times when that has to happen. And I think if FERC had been a little more judicious in its use of tolling orders, we might not be here today with an order like this. But I think that despite the impact on stare decisis, I mean, I don't think stare decisis means that you can never overrule an, an existing principle. I agree with that. And it's going to be interesting to see how this impacts FERC practice moving forward, because I, I also agree that these were sort of bad facts from a FERC mm-hmm. perspective. And you have to think that FERC may seek some legislative relief or some other avenues, because on some of these orders, candidly, 30 days is a really tight turnaround Mm -hmm. for them to actually get some of this stuff out the door. And it's hard for me to believe that they can do the work that is necessary within 30 days on something like take the MOPR order. I mean, there were so many issues raised on rehearing there that they had to sort through. They're going to need some sort of relief. But by the same token, you know, I agree. Um, they probably went too far in this case. And, you know, the court appropriately said, do, do better. <laughs> but uh, be, before we move on from this one, I got a little bit of a bone to pick with Commissioner Glick on this, because as a result of his writing on this, I've been doing way too much research into Franz Kafka. And I, and I, and I think I've reluctantly, you know, committed myself to actually reading some of his stuff now, which I'm not looking forward to doing. So uh, hopefully some folks out there are willing to to join in this Franz Kafka summer reading exercise <laughs> because misery loves company. And uh, by the way, spoiler alert, he didn't finish any of the books he started. So uh, any reading you will do will probably leave you with a cliffhanger. So uh, Commissioner Glick, um, I look forward to seeing you again and talking about some of Franz Kafka's actual writing. <laughs> Glenn, my advice to you is don't read it before you go to bed. Those dreams are not going to be fun. Oh, is that right? So you have read Kafka? I have read Kafka, yes. And what do you think? I think it's an appropriate way to describe what happened to the plaintiffs in that case. Okay. Well, at least I found one person who's actually read him. That's great. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of misguided adventures in surrealism, Stephanie, we couldn't invite you on the GT Power Hour and spend some time with you without talking about New Jersey's toying with the FRR. So let's spend a few minutes talking about that. So this is the fixed resource requirement, uh, which for anyone who is kind of new to this is the opposite of PJM's current variable resource requirement curve. And it's the idea that states could essentially go and determine the generation mix for their state if they want to specifically dictate which resources they will support or be used in the state. And it is the opposite of what happens with the current PJM system, where everything is dispatched economically and based on whatever's in the entire region. How are you managing this issue? It's specifically kind of flaring up in New Jersey. How are you managing that? We've submitted comments. Our commission issued a notice seeking comments. They are calling it a resource adequacy investigation. And there is a proposal from PSE&G, which is our largest utility, and Exelon, which owns uh, Atlantic City Electric, which is our South Jersey utility. 
And they have proposed sort of a rollout of a layered kind of FRR where you'd start in one zone and have that zone acquire all of the clean energy or the, all the subsidized electricity. They seem to be, based on their criteria of which zone to pick, they seem to be volunteering JCP&L, which is kind of interesting because I'm not so sure that JCP&L wants to volunteer. They filed comments too, and they didn't volunteer. So we're very troubled by it because of the market power implications. Mm -hmm. We believe they're substantial. There's an IMM report that is, demonstrates that they're substantial. And what we're very afraid of is that we'll end up back with an unregulated monopoly as opposed to where we were when, before deregulation. And, and at least then there was regulation, right? So we're very, very concerned about that. And so we've definitely urged caution on the part of the, of the commission and I think one of the things that was interesting to me is the Exelon and PSE&G are also the entities receiving zero emissions credits, mm -hmm. or ZECs as we call them, for their nuclear plants. And they actually in their comments said they would give up the ZECs in order to get the FRR, mm -hmm. which suggests to me that they think they're going to make more money on the FRR than <laughs> ZECs. So that, a bit of that's subtext a red there, flag yeah. for me. Yeah, that's definitely a red flag. So I just think the board needs to really tread lightly here. The, you know, some of the other possibilities would be a state power authority, which has its own issues. Right now, our state is $10 billion in the hole from this pandemic. I don't necessarily see us creating new state agencies. So there's the theoretical, and then there's the reality. And I just don't think the reality supports this right now. You mentioned the, the ZEC debate, and I was knee-deep in that one with you uh, on behalf of the PJM Power Providers Group, or P3. But in the ZEC debate, how that played out eventually at the board was you had you, Stephanie, and your experts saying they're profitable, these plants are profitable, they don't need the money. You had the BPU board staff saying these plants are profitable, they don't need the money. You had the independent market monitor saying they're profitable, they don't need the money. And yet P3's expert, Paul Sukevich, former PGM economist, saying these plants are profitable. They don't need the money. Yet the operator said, we're still going to close these plants down if you don't give us the money. Mm -hmm. And then you had the board saying, geez, we feel like we're being held for ransom, but we're going to approve it. So in essence, even though you had this wide body of evidence saying they didn't meet the legislative standard, uh, and granted, PSEG and Exxon were in there saying they did meet the standard. I mean, I think there was a lone voice out there saying they actually did meet the standard. One of the things I think is concerning about what PSEG and Exxon have now put on the table is it's basically the same scenario recreated without the $300 million cap. I mean, they'll go to the board and say, hey, we need this much money or we're going to close it down. And the board at least appears to have very little ability to question that money. And ultimately, it's the operator's decision whether they're going to shut down that plant or not, not the BPU. So aren't we just creating a higher stakes game of ransom here with where they're going? Let's start with these plants are profitable and they don't need the subsidies because that's just the reality of it. So, we, you know, here we are a year out, I guess, or two years out. And I think that that is absolutely true. And it is, everybody who's looked at it has come to that. We, we know that I believe that $300 million is just going straight into dividends. So that is just true. The politics, I believe, is what took over here because <clears throat> politics and a little bit of fear. So we know that the companies were putting tremendous pressure on the legislature. We also know that the fear that they might follow through with their threat 
was something that scared the commissioners. And one of them had the courage to say, no, I'm sorry, but this isn't right. A couple of others basically said, I don't think this is right, but I'm scared that they're going to actually shut these plants down. And so I gotta, I'm going to go along with it. And that was the only way that they got a majority. Now you're right, we have this case, it's up in, this is, goes back to the justice delayed, justice denied issue. We're up in the appellate division. We're just waiting on an oral argument. The case has been fully briefed. I am very, very comfortable with our legal position. And Yet, I'm not sure, I, well, I know I can't get a, a, a decision from the court before ratepayers are going to have to pay a whole bunch of money. And you can't, it's very difficult in, in court to get an injunction when the issue is money, because you have to establish something called irreparable harm, which really cannot just be the payment of money. So we're basically going to have to wait and then hopefully be able to get refunds in the future if we win. And you're right, this is another situation where we're going down a road that would just make it, you know, it would be super sex. <laughs> you know, it would be more putting us in the position of being able to be threatened in that way. And that's what I think we really have to try to avoid. In my mind, the regulator needs to put their foot down and say, I'm sorry, we're not going to let you run this game. We're going to decide how it's going to go. And if we get into a situation where we're in an FRR and we have a utility that is the FRR entity, they will have complete control over us. And it does scare me. It definitely scares me. And I think that people need to be brave and we're headed now. We, uh, we just got a notice that was issued by the board yesterday. They're starting the second round of looking at Zach's and, you know, we'll see what happens. If it happens again, you know, at some point, maybe you have to call their bluff. Yeah. I mean, this is a game of regulatory chicken. Why would the board continue to want to put itself in that spot is beyond me because I think you're right. I mean, that was an untenable spot that they were in. I mean, it was really, really tough. And it seems like the FRR just institutionalizes that on a lot of levels. I, I agree with that. I totally agree with that. When you have a commissioner saying, I feel like I'm being asked to pay ransom and the hostage are the people of the state of New Jersey, that is really powerful. That is really important. And, uh, you know, as public servants, we can't allow that to happen. So hopefully that's how it's going to end up. But I can't say right now that it is. Well, we've gotten deep into some issues here and this has all been very serious. Let's move on to some fun stuff. You're down at the shore. I am. Stephanie, let's do some rapid fire Jersey reference preferences. Are you ready? Who's, yeah. who's better, Springsteen or Bon Jovi? Springsteen. Springsteen. I'm a Springsteen fan. Big okay. Time. Okay. Autobiography. I highly recommend it. Okay. All right. All right. Pork roll or Taylor ham? Yeah. You know, I don't really have an opinion on this one. Oh. I know that non-Jersey thing to say. It is. It's raised, a really non. I yes. thought you'd have a very strong opinion on no, this. No. Um. So I was raised in Northern Jersey, as where we call it Taylor ham. Mm-hmm. And so I did grow up calling it Taylor ham, but I really didn't eat it very much as I was growing up. And I now live in central Jersey, where um, I think it's called pork roll, because that's the Trenton version. But I don't eat a lot of this stuff. <laughs> I will be very honest. It's delicious, but it's not good for you. So I don't eat it very much. So I will eat either Taylor ham or pork roll once in a blue moon. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you just actually hit on another one I was going to ask. Is there a central Jersey? Yes, there is. Okay, absolutely. I, I thought you... I was going to say, I think you probably have a very personal perspective on that. All right. Giants or Eagles? 
Yeah, I'm not really a big football fan, but I'm definitely yeah. in New York. I grew up in the New York suburbs. My parents okay. were both from New York. So I don't pay attention to football till the playoffs. I will root for, for a New York team. If there's no New York team in there, I have a couple of friends who are big football fans. I'll go for their teams. That's usually the Saints or the Packers. Oh, and, okay. Uh, and then if all else fails, I guess I'll go along with the Eagles if they're the only ones left in there. Well, we had planned to ask then about Phillies or Yankees, but you let us know ahead of time. I, no, you no, let no. us know, and you made it very clear that that is absolutely the wrong question. So the new question is, how on earth can you be a Mets fan? Hey. Because, because the Mets are fabulous. The Mets are, the Mets are uh, listen, I'm a consumer advocate, okay? I don't need to win all the time, and I never do win all the time, okay? That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that does make a lot of sense. If you're if you if you don't win all the time, but you win once in a while, that makes those victories that much more sweet. And I am a huge Mets fan. Okay, it's my religion pretty much. And I'm the daughter of two diehard Brooklyn Dodgers fans. Mm -hmm. And when the Dodgers broke my parents' heart and moved to California, they prohibited me and my siblings from rooting for the Yankees. They just were not going to have it. And then the Mets came along and I literally remember my parents sitting us down and saying, we shall be Mets fans. And I come from, I mean, my brother used to write books about the Mets. I'm a huge Mets fan. I, hmm. I can't, well, I'm not so sure about this season, but they're great. They're, uh, you know, they're always exciting. They're always the underdogs and it makes it that much better. So who are your favorite players on the Mets over time? Well, uh, Keith Hernandez is a big one for me. Bud Harrelson. I love Jacob deGrom. I think he's oh, just interesting. amazing. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I, there's a lot of them. I, I really do love them all. You didn't mention Lenny Dykstra or Wally Backman. Yeah, no, I didn't. You know what? I didn't even like Lenny Dykstra and Wally Backman back in 86. I tolerated <laughs> them, but they were not my favorites. <laughs> do you have the same reflexive disdain for Pennsylvania that Pennsylvanians generally seem to have for New Jersey? Or is that just not a thing that Jerseyans care about? Well, um, so I live right on the Pennsylvania border. I live in Lambertville, New Jersey, which is a sister city to New Hope, Pennsylvania. So I'm fine with Bucks County and New Hope. That's kind of where I live. You know, we're all kind of one area. But I will confess that there are people on my side of the river that refer to it as Pennsylvania. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I will say that I don't draw generalizations. And I do, I do love Bucks County. I do, I think Philly's a great city. I went to Pittsburgh for the first time last summer, actually, to go see a Pirates game, mm -hmm. Pirates-Mets. Great stadium, there. right? Great stadium. Great, great PNC stadium. is beautiful. Oh, gorgeous, but also a really great city. I, I, mm -hmm. I really enjoyed it. So I don't hate Pennsylvania, although there are some Pennsylvanians who I might have complaints about. <laughs> when, uh, when you took that trip to Pittsburgh, did you struggle to pump your own gas on the turnpike? No, I went with a friend from New York who knew how to pump gas. Okay, that helps. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, well, that segues quite nicely because actually uh, I was going to ask on the flip side of that, do you share the reflexive disdain for New York that it appears the BPU president, Fior DeLiso, seems to have. No, I don't. I'm a New Yorker, actually. Yeah. You know, my parents grew up in Brooklyn. I, you know, I'm a, New I'm a Jersey girl, yes. But I lived in the city for many, many years, and I, I love New York City, and I always will. I do think that New York is not treating New Jersey very well right now in terms of, you know, the Con Ed wheel. And you know, I think there's like 12 cases at FERC right now about mm -hmm. problems on that scene. 
And so in that particular dispute, yeah, I'm pretty angry with New York, but I don't hold it against the city that I love. How did New York end up with Staten Island? I I still don't quite understand that. I think New York was colonized first. (laughs) And I think that, you know, they just ended up with Staten Island. It is closer to New Jersey than it is to other parts of New York. But but at least we got Ellis Island in the end, right? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So I I recently read about this musical categorization they're calling the Jersey Shore Sound, sort of in that same Mm. way as like you got Motown and and, uh, all the other things. You know, and this is, you know, you're thinking Frankie Valley, you're thinking the Four Seasons, Springsteen, Bon Jovi, this uh, newer band called Gaslight Anthem, might have heard of them, uh, and that is supposedly partially characterized by a sense of being the underdog. Is that a theme that resonates in New Jersey and why? (laughs) Well, you know, I I think it does because the rest of the country makes fun of us. And, um, but we think Pennsylvania. Well, right. We think that just shows ignorance because the fact is that they think the whole state is the New Jersey turnpike. What Mm -hmm. they don't realize is we decided to build all our industry along the highway that out-of-staters use so that the people in-state could have beautiful, pristine um, places to live and Come on, I like that argument. Is it? Yeah. yeah. So I don't necessarily want to disabuse people of that because then the Jersey Shore <laughs> will become even more crowded, and Lambertville, where I live, will become even more crowded. And so I think that pe- and maybe there is a bit of the underdog thing. Maybe that fits with the whole Mets theme. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But New Jersey is oft maligned, but the people who actually know it realize that it's actually gorgeous. It's the Garden State after you get off the highway. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, I guess, uh, Rory, you're coming here. Glenn, I don't know if you've ever been to the Jersey Shore, but it's gorgeous here. Yeah, I spent most of my quarantine down at the Jersey Shore. So, oh, there you yeah. go. Okay. <laughs> it was a great okay. place to quarantine, let's just say that. It is. It is. <laughs> What's your favorite shore town? I'm in Ship Bottom. Ship Bottom is uh, the gateway to Long Beach Island. I'm an LBI gal. Mm, okay. Uh, okay. All right. Mm-hmm. We, we, we are on our way to Ocean Beach 3. Just north of La Valette, so... Uh, okay. Whom do you consider a role model? <sighs> well, there's a few. I would consider Michelle Obama to be a role, a role model. Okay. I think she's really terrific. If you haven't read her memoir, that's a good one to read, too. Sure. I've had some incredible mentors in my career. I, the judge that I clerked for, uh, Gary Stein on the New Jersey Supreme Court, Someone who's been an incredible role model to me, you know, and Jacob DeGrom. God, he won the Cy Young two years in a row. <laughs> That's, That's maybe the one. most unique Mount Rushmore of role models I think I've ever heard. Absolutely. Really? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, no I'm wonder. A Renaissance woman, what can I say? Yeah, yeah. Bunch of different influences there. Boy. Okay, so a lot of a lot of state commissioners listen to our show. You have practiced in front of numerous commissioners during your tenure and have been exposed to commissioners throughout other states. What in your mind makes a good commissioner and uh, feel free to name names? Oh, I'm going to say bravery. It's a hard job. And to do the right thing sometimes requires you to say no to people. And that's a hard thing for people to do, you know, especially because Politics does come into play for people who are commissioners. They have to appear before the legislature. They have to get confirmed. They have no real choice in that. So I would say that bravery is really, and and, and I'm going to go back to what I said at the beginning, that that ability to understand what you don't know and that Mm -hmm. that a comfort in asking the people who do know to help you understand. I think those are, those are just really important things. I'm not going to name names because I can't, 
think right off the top of my head of who I would say has done it well or, or hasn't done it well. But I will say that I think it's a hard job and it's one that is incredibly important. And I, I just hope that, you know, that level of humility of, of being able to understand when you don't know something and you need somebody to explain it to you, that you're comfortable enough to do that. Because I think that's much more important than appearing to be right all the time. All right. So we always end our show with two particular segments. The first of those, we like to call this two minutes of advice, in which you get two minutes with anyone anywhere in the world to sit down and provide two minutes of one-on-one advice, what they should be doing or how they can be doing it better. Stephanie, who do you got? I think I'm going to have to go with Governor Murphy, because what I would want to tell him is that Governor, if we're going to achieve the goals that you've laid out, which are very ambitious and very important, we're going to need people to understand how everything gets paid for and how many people in our state right now are suffering and don't have enough money to pay for the basics. So if we're going to talk about shared sacrifice, it really has to be shared amongst everyone. It means that if ratepayers are taking a hit, the utilities have to take a hit. It means that we need to spread not only the wealth, but also the pain. Glenn, what do you got going on this month? Yeah, you know, I'm gonna. I actually was gonna do Governor Murphy, but now I'm gonna <laughs> do the uh, BPU uh, because I, I think Stephanie articulated some terrific advice to Governor Murphy. Let me direct mine at the BPU, and I also want to piggyback on what Stephanie just said. And that is, I would encourage the board as they're looking at MOPR and FRR and the options before you to be brave and don't be afraid to say no because there are some pretty bad ideas in front of you. We've seen mistakes made in the past in New Jersey. You know, certainly the Zek movie we don't want to watch again. And I worry that there's ideas in front of you that could put New Jersey on that path times 10 and create a much, much worse situation that it's really going to be hard to get out of. These FRR decisions are longstanding, a minimum of five years, but the reality is it's probably a permanent move. And if it's not done well, you're really going to leave your ratepayers and your entire state exposed to some bad consequences. So be brave. Don't be afraid to say no. Okay. Well, as always, we promised to get you out of here in under an hour, and we're very close again this month, but I'm you're still getting a few minutes back. Chairman Chatterjee, if you're listening, apologies again for the long workout, but hopefully you're getting used to it at this point. All right. Any final thoughts from anybody while we're here? Glenn? Oh, terrific. Thank you, Stephanie, for joining us. Wonderful conversation. Yeah, it's my pleasure being here. I guess my only final thought is that, you know, uh, we're still in a pandemic. (laughs) So uh, a lot of the things that we were planning are getting canceled. And I think we have to look at the pain that a lot of New Jerseyans are going through and make sure that we don't leave anyone out. Well, as always, we will end our podcast again with be excellent to each other. Thank you again for being here, everybody, and we'll see you again next month. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the GT Power Hour. The views expressed on the show represent those of the hosts and not necessarily any GT Power Group client. For more information, please visit www.gtpowergroup.com. That's G-T-P-O-W-E-R-G-R-O-U. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.